This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. I realized getting ready uh, for this show that we've got a trio of guests from Atlanta today. Very excited about that. And our first uh, is Patrice Harris. She is back with us, Dr. Patrice Harris. She's the president of the American Medical Association on the phone from the ATL, my hometown. Uh, Dr. Harris, really nice to have you back with us. A very timely conversation, and your geography is relevant in part because that's where I want to start. Help us understand what reopening looks like so far. It's top of mind for all of us. Well, thank you for having me, and, and glad to know you are a fellow ATLian. <laughs> uh, you know, certainly we've been concerned that the AMA physicians across this country have been concerned about um, premature reopening, uh, especially uh, without regard uh, to data and metrics. And, you know, the original plan from the administration's task force was really a, a good plan, and it set forth at least 14 days of, of uh, uh, decreased infections. And so... I'm really concerned. I remain concerned. And I just read a report today about a church in Georgia who um, has been open for a couple of weeks, but several of the members uh, have now become positive, and so they are reclosing. So we certainly need to be careful on on this reopening and be measured uh, before we do so, before we relax restrictions. So do we need to – so is is that – you kind of saying we're going too fast? It could be in certain situations, and again, it does depend on the data. That's why it's so important, I think, to make sure that there are metrics in place uh, to review the number of hospitalizations, you know, not just the positive cases. We need to look at the testing in context. Now, look, we are, if we increase testing, we are likely to get increased number of tests as an absolute number. So we also need the denominator. We need the bottom number. We need the number of infections over how much we are testing. We need to track hospitalization. We need to have this data by zip code so we can target interventions and know what areas we need uh, to, to focus on. For instance, if there's an area where the case numbers are low, uh, no new infections, no hospitalizations, then you could proceed uh, more quickly. So it's, it's all about having the metrics and loosening restrictions based on the data. Well, and Dr. Harris, it also feels like sort of embedded in what you're saying is consistency of data, too. And I feel like I've read and heard a lot about that, that, you know, we're not always getting true sort of apples to apples comparisons across regions or or maybe even within a state. Are you guys at the AMA sort of working on, on anything related to that to help ensure that we are making the right comparisons here? Well, I have been really concerned about the lack of standard uh, data collection. Now, in fact, of course, uh, the AMA wrote um, early on in recognition of the fact that um, blacks were overrepresented in the number of 
depth. So we asked for some standard data collection. And, of course, we asked for uh, data collection on race and ethnicity. So we really do need to be comparing apples to apples. I posted something yesterday on my social media about the importance of a more uh, standardized uh, method for data collection because, you know, the virus doesn't stop at county borders or state borders. And so it's very important at the very least we are all looking at the same set of numbers so we can have greater understanding of the data. Dr. Harris, so why is it that we don't, you said, you know, we, the mer- metrics are very important. We need to really have standardization when it comes to the data collection. So why is it that I can have my home device, whether it's Google or Amazon, they know when I'm out of something or probably should be reordering something. Um, they can do so much. Why is it that there's so much information out there yet we don't yet have the standardization and the metrics, the census, right? I think about how many things I got on that. Why is it that we haven't been able to create some kind of standardized system for data collection? Well, well, that is the the, the question, isn't it? And and let me just say, of course, being in Atlanta and uh, working personally, of course, the AMA has a lot of partnerships with the CDC, and I'm a former health director. I can tell you uh, that public health from the national level, from the state and the local level has been underfunded. Mm. over the last uh, several years, and that we need the funding. We need to get the support to public health so that they can uh, modernize data collection and make sure uh, the data collection is standardized. So that, that would help. We need to get the resources into the but, public but, health. But, but help me out some, because Americans spend something like $3.6 trillion on health care, and I understand that's going to services and supporting hospitals and, and so on and so forth and facilities, but why isn't some of that money at this point in the game, you know, creating some kind of system so that we have great data collection? Well, certainly that is our recommendation from the AMA. Um, and, and we have called, again, from the very beginning for a coordinated strategy because, again, this requires some coordination with, with federal leadership. And that has been our ask since the very beginning, not just on data collection, but also on supplies and testing and PPE. So we will continue to raise and amplify uh, that issue. I'll say something more broadly, even pre-COVID-19. You know, public health is difficult uh, to explain because it's almost public health is, is work, works best when people don't even know it, right? When no one gets sick at a restaurant because of infections. And so I hope, it is my hope, uh, that everyone now has a better understanding of the importance of public health in the overall healthcare ecosystem, uh, and that we look at more resources and we certainly pay attention to um, improve right. data collection. Our guest at this hour is Dr. Patrice Harris, president of the American Medical Association, joining us on the phone from Atlanta. Hey, I just want to, Dr. Harris, if I may, just one more question in terms of data collection, because someone calling me out on Twitter and saying, wait a minute, you ask, you know, as if the data collection from tech companies is a good thing. Um, and And this individual says, I disagree. Privacy is more important. Is that part of what's holding everything up is the privacy concerns, which are which are important ones. But I just do wonder if that's what's slowing down our ability to really get some standardized data collection when it comes to the virus. You know, I, I don't think it's necessarily slowing down uh, progress on using technology, but it is an important consideration. Um, at the AMA, we've been engaged, and we just released 
uh, what we call our privacy principles around data. Um, and so I, I, I just don't think that integrating privacy and concerns about confidentiality should slow the process down. It should inform the process. But uh, just from my uh, viewing, it doesn't necessarily have to slow the process down. We'll just have to take that into consideration as we use data, uh, use technology. And I, and I will say, because, you know, contract, contact tracing is not new, right? We've been using that in public health for some time. Technology has a role to play, but, you know, we cannot forget the human connection. Even before COVID-19, we may be contacting someone and letting them know some not-so-great information, some difficult information. So it's about integrating appropriately technology uh, with the human touch. Well, and the human touch, I, I feel like, is front of mind for people as they try and reopen. We talked a little bit about that a few minutes ago. Uh, Dr. Harris, how much are you worried uh, about a second wave of this hitting in the fall? Well, I'm extremely worried. You know, that's been the worry all along from the beginning. I think we should remind everyone that one of the reasons, and this is my, my term, our emergency mitigation, where we really encourage everyone to shelter in place, because as you recall, we were worried about making decisions about who uh, would get on a ventilator if we did not yeah. have a ventilator. So I think people forget that. And so uh, appropriately, we are having conversations about loosening uh, these restrictions. But we have to make sure, again, that we are measured in our approach. And if we have and if we go slowly, if there's a, a slight uptick, we know that data immediately and we can immediately reassess and readjust. That, that is how we should be moving forward, loosening, reassessing, and readjusting as necessary. But it is scary when you see China doing another lockdown, I think, of more than 100 million people, and, and I think specifically Wuhan. So, you know, it's, it's, it isn't a clear, straight path forward, and that certainly is um, nerve-wracking. The other thing, we're all trying to figure out treatments. What did you make of the president coming out and saying that he is taking hydroxychloroquine and this is a drug. I mean, the AMA has come out and, and, and actually cautioned against the use of some of these medicines, including, I believe, this. So what is your takeaway from that? Well, here's where we stand at the AMA. We start and begin with the science and the evidence and the facts. And as of today, there is no evidence that hydroxychloroquine works either in treatment or in the prevention of COVID-19. Research trials are underway as we speak regarding hydroxychloroquine, and we really need to let the research uh, pan out uh, to know if this is safe. But what we do know now is the FDA has cautioned against the use of hydroxychloroquine outside right. of the hospital setting where it can't be monitored. So we, we stand with the science and the evidence. Just got about 30 seconds. Does this complicate, though, AMA members, doctors who are out in the field when the president does this and maybe patients come to them? I'm just curious what you're hearing, and just quickly if you could. Okay, well, it, it doesn't compl uh, complicate. You know, physicians have always had um, shared decision-making with our patients going over the risk and the benefits, and we talk about the benefits even when they're life-threatening. So... Uh, this is our usual course of uh, work. All right. Well, great to catch up with you. We always appreciate your time. Dr. Patrice Harris, president of the American Medical Association, joining us on the phone from Atlanta. And, you know, a clear takeaway there is 
the data, the consistency of data, and the ability to really compare and contrast. And, and I was glad that Dr. Harris called back to our earlier conversation where she was talking about those underrepresented and over um, exposed in, in many cases populations, uh, it really over indexing in some of the uh, different socioeconomic uh, sectors there. So, uh, an important reminder uh, there. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do a little business week economics here. Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor, back at HQ. Uh, you're to hear how that's all going. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I miss our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, Carol Masser. Carl Riccadonna, also with us, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. He's on the phone in New Jersey. So, KH, I want to start with you. I'm guessing you have been watching uh, Chair Powell mm-hmm. and Secretary Mnuchin uh, very closely, as we have. What's your big takeaway so far? Because the market, at least on the equity side, is like, eh, all right. Well, you know, the, the, the backdrop for this, of course, the backdrop for this, of course, is that uh, the uh, Democrats and the Republicans are, you know, they're, they're battling over whether or not more stimulus would be needed now, right away, how much or not. So that's the backdrop. And I think for both uh, Sec- uh, Chair Powell and Secretary Mnuchin, they went into this knowing that, that for, you know, for Mnuchin, for example, the Democrats would beat him up like crazy. And for Powell knowing that they would push him hard to say clearly, yeah, I'm with you guys. Let's do more stimulus now. And uh, Chair Powell predictably, I think, slipped uh, into the uh, typical Fed chair pattern that you kind of have to, which is to say, yes, I think there could be more stimulus. But he said, I'm speaking generally. In other words, it's up to you guys to do this and you guys decide what that should be. And I think uh, Mnuchin predictably said, well, look, we've done lots Lots of things. Yes, there's been some problems. Uh, and he, I think he's much more wanted to be focused on all the things they've done that are falling into place. So long and the short of it, I don't know if, if these testimonies did much more than reassure people, certainly from the Fed, that they're saying they're still, he's still willing to do more if needed. And I think even Chair Powell isn't ready to say today, yes, we're going to do more because they've, you know, they've got four more out of nine programs to launch, et cetera, et cetera. They have to see the impact they have. But uh, again, I think you, we, we pretty much, pre- we pretty much figured this is the kind of day we're going to, I thought it was interesting, but I don't think it, it gave, it told us anything particularly new. Anything new, Carl Riccadonna? Uh, well, I think that the, you know the new angle here is how much uh, pressure there's going to be on uh, fiscal uh, stimulus. Uh, the, the the amazing amount of uh, fiscal stimulus that we uh, delivered uh, in the uh, current quarter really is just enough to get us through that quarter. And so, if we're if we're looking at an economy that still is significantly impaired as we head into the second half of the year, and most likely that's going to be the case, we'll probably have an unemployment rate at uh, about 18 percent. Uh, as we turn into the back half of the year, uh, then uh, more uh, support is definitely going to be needed. And that's a fiscal story uh, that Congress and the administration have to deal with. Uh, It also will likely mean uh, that the Fed has to do more as well. And a slew of Fed speakers from the chair on down have made it abundantly clear that policymakers are not in a neutral setting at the moment. They are definitely uh, looking to lean in and do more. Uh, They're just figuring out the best way to deliver that accommodation. Well, you kind of just throw in something really quickly. I think the question is, yeah, but if we're going to do more, what more are we going to do? Who was it who said recently, you know, let's just let's put the money directly into people's pockets, right? Let's go just give more money to people who, who, who can't get work, who are out of work, who are, you know, whatever. And I think that's why this gets so complicated because 
there are many industries, there's many businesses, there's many kinds of people who have been hurt by this. And I, I think what um, some people would like to see, which is, you remember when we criticized Bernanke back during the crisis and Yellen of the financial crisis, too many programs that, that whole idea, maybe just have a helicopter that dro drops money on people's front lawns, right? I think that's part of the issue here. If we're going to spend more money, who is it going to support? How is it going to support them? But it right. struck me that the money to like small business that were still Main Street, Main Street, right? That program, we're still waiting for that to kick in. And that to me seems, Carl, so important to this economy. Absolutely. So uh, I, I'm all for uh, Kathleen's uh, advocacy of uh, you know, providing unemployment support. Uh, maybe not literal helicopters. Uh, oh, I thought you were. Uh, I thought you were supporting the helicopter. <laughs> but but you stay socially distanced from a helicopter, Carl. So yeah. that helicopter can land in my front yard, by the way. Okay. Uh, but uh, unemployment insurance is really one of the most critical tools for delivering uh, funds and filling the void where it's most acute during this crisis. However, we also have to think of the business side, the supply side of the occasion uh, be, uh, of, of the equation, because if we're not supporting those businesses, there won't be jobs to go back to. Uh, when the lockdown is uh, released. And so we really have to provide support on both sides. But the main danger is, and we highlighted this from the very start, uh, to be too clever uh, in delivery. And we saw that with the small business program. Uh, we also see that with the Main Street Lending program, that if things are overly engineered and overly elegant, often they're not as effective as just a blunt force a solution to the problem. So you really try multiple different things, but make sure the cash is getting where it needs to go. And Carl, is the data, are the data showing us in any sense at this point, like sort of what's working and what's not? When will we see that? Well, I think most importantly to watch uh, for, for what's working are uh, measures like, well, first of all, uh, financial markets are a great sentiment sure. indicator. So the fact that uh, financial markets have come back to a, a meaningful degree tells you that uh, maybe there is a light at the end of the tunnel for the crisis. Uh, the other thing to keep an eye on are other sentiment gauges like consumer confidence or small business mm -hmm. sentiment, uh, home builder sentiment, and those are starting to at least show a, a floor, if not uh, some signs of recovery, uh, but most critically will be the labor market metrics because we need to get through the worst of this spike in unemployment right. uh, to see that the economy is starting to move on to a more even keel. So maybe we also need a virus confidence or lack of confidence index because so many people say over and over and over until people are confident, until there's going to be a vaccine. Well, I don't think we can wait for a vaccine necessarily because they usually take a lot longer. But I think this whole sense of when does the tide turn enough? When are there enough treatments maybe? Those can be developed a lot more quickly where people are more willing to say, yeah, I know a lot of people. I have a friend who works for the airlines. She went back to work for her airline uh, a couple of weeks ago. There are people who are going out there. There are people who would love to shop. There are people who are scared and they maybe should be that they won't go near this for the long time. I, Carl, do you think you could get something like that started? virus confidence index? <laughs> let, let, let me see what I can do. Uh, but importantly, we can measure that confidence in a lot of other uh, series, like the ones I mentioned, uh, for instance, business gauges, uh, financial market performance. So, of course, if we had a confidence metric of, you know, uh, people's attitudes towards uh, COVID-19 and, and, and whatnot, right. uh, that would be useful. But it shows up indirectly through a lot of other economic gauges. All right, Carl Riccadonna, Kathleen Hayes, thank you both so much. Good breakdown from what we're hearing. Continue to hear a lot uh, from Fed Chair Jay Powell. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly.
on Bloomberg Radio. We want to move on to our next segment because, man, if Tom Keene doesn't know about this next guest in his company, we've got ah. to make sure he does. We're talking about bow ties of Vermont, which started out making bow ties years ago, now does a lot more, including making masks to protect against the virus. Transparency, I was doing research for this segment and I went to the website, I bought some masks. Uh, wow. Just going to tell you. Uh, this week in our Bloomberg Business Week Small Business Survival Guide, we welcome Greg Sugar. He's the owner of bow ties of Vermont. He joins us on the phone, though, from Florida, along with our Bloomberg News editor, Demetra Cassanidi. She's on the phone in New Jersey. Demetra, let's start with you. Tell us how you were drawn to Greg and bow ties uh, for your coverage. Sure. Thanks, Carol. Um, well, I saw a post of his on LinkedIn, which is part of his story. I'd talked to Greg in the past and connected on LinkedIn because of one of his other businesses a few years ago, Thread Experiment. And I saw a post that said that he had masks and he was having a hard time finding people to buy the masks. This was in the first phase of his business's pivot when they thought and tried to do PPE and bring in the actual, you know, verified, safe, protective mask. So, um, so I chatted with Greg, I called him up, and we have spent a back and forth documenting um, his journey of the last two months that we'll be publishing on our Small Business Survival Guide tomorrow. Um, but it's really an extraordinary journey that's about masks, but really about listen to your customers, respond when they say they want something, and really be prepared, you know, to just kind of uh, be very nimble and react quickly. Absolutely. I mean, a big pivot here, Greg. So tell us about it, because one of the things it sounds like you did was think about your supply chain and your suppliers and your relationships in sort of a different way. Help us understand it. Sure. Um, well, when when uh, everything was sort of happening and, and we heard about all these shortages uh, going on at hospitals, I was wondering why why there was a shortage. And my first instinct was, you know, there, there must be a way to get this stuff in. And so I quickly contacted my contact in China and uh, someone I've been doing business with for 15 years. And I said, you know, we're, there's a mask shortage, a protective mask shortage here in America. Are you guys able to, to create something? And he said, yeah, there's a lot of businesses now for getting getting started in producing uh, and manufacturing these protective masks. So he and I spent about one or two days together, uh, literally uh, traveling China. I was doing it through WeChat, and we reached out, and we finally found a couple factories to do this. Um, I reached out. You know, I never cold called. It's not my style. I've been in e-commerce my whole life. But I, I, I cold called people I was reading about online or seeing even on TV and saying, you know, we can get you some masks. Um, what do you tell us what you need? And so I spent about the next two weeks hustling, um, spending every night on, on WeChat, speaking to my factory, hustling to get sales. And eventually I brought in hundreds of thousands of masks and got them to healthcare workers around the country. Even though my business is really it's men's fashion, I sell ties and I sell shirts and I sell belts, um, pocket squares. But all of a sudden I just I saw an opportunity because, as you can imagine, there's not a lot of bow tie sales going on during this pandemic. So this, for me, was a way to stay above water, keep my workers busy, and, and really to make payroll. What's been tough, though, about being a small business owner right now? Because we, you know, Greg, talk to a lot of small business owners or those who work with them. I mean, it's this has been a really difficult environment. You sound like, obviously, you have found a way to survive here, but it's not necessarily been easy. I mean, I think one of the biggest struggles has been this PPP program because We've been required to, it's nice to have the money, don't get me wrong, but we've been required to spend that money in an eight-week period. Uh, and during an eight-week period, though, that really, at least in retail, 
now a lot's going on. You're seeing that in restaurants and some other businesses. So I'm paying some workers to, to sort of sit home and do nothing because we just don't have the business to do it. Um, that sort of changed a little bit for us as we started getting into the cloth mask business. Um, but still, I think the biggest struggle for a lot of small businesses is this requirement to spend this, this uh, PPP money in eight weeks and really pay workers not to be, do anything productive. It would be so much nicer if we had a lot more time to use that money to pay toward payroll instead of being forced to do it during this eight-week period while our economy is sort of getting back up and running again. We're not at full speed, and so um, I can't keep my workers busy all the time right now. And so, Greg, what, what do you think – what does this portend for your business longer term given everything that you just laid out? You've been opportunistic uh, clearly, but it sounds like – there still are some fairly significant financial strains here, especially when you think about sort of the midterm prospects. Yeah, well, I'll tell you this. I mean, we did a really, really quick pivot into cloth masks, so the stuff that we all wear day to day. So now I'm not talking about healthcare workers anymore. Yeah. I'm just talking about people like you and I. And we very quickly got into that. We had some customers reach out and say, can you make some masks? Um, you know, you're, I think the belief that we were in the textile business, it would be sort of a natural thing for us. We also had been making, our seamstresses were making masks for healthcare workers, fabric masks. This is back in March where they were wearing bandanas to, to the hospital if they had to. And mm. so we sent an email around. They said, why don't you make them for your customers? So we quickly changed that. So now, I mean, in the short term, to answer your question, like the next three to six months, I mean, we still sell some bow ties and neckties and shirts every day, but it's just we're probably down 70 to 80% from last wow. year in that world. So the mask. Um, business is really what's kind of keeping us alive and keeping us afloat. So I'm going to ride this wave. I'm trying to own the market. We we offer 70 styles right now. There's no other business that offers so many. I've got another 35 coming next week and another 40 well, after the week. I'm after the week after that. I'm just going to say, because when I went on the website, man, so many were sold out. So you definitely are, you know, tapping into something. Demetra, just going to save the last 30 seconds here for you. When you talk to small businesses, what are you hearing? Is it a lot of folks that are figuring a way around this or a lot who are struggling? You know, it's both. I mean, it's, it's businesses like Greg's where there might be a type of manufacturing that enables them to figure a way around but is still not recouping the kind of business that they were making pre-crisis. And others are struggling a little bit more if they weren't necessarily in a certain kind of business that could easily, you know, be adjusted in a way that could either make masks or create a different uh, form of, you know, whatever you're producing and delivering it to customers. So it's so mixed, but the PPP point he made and Mm -hmm. the limitation on that is something that we have heard across the board as being more constraining, actually, in a way than yeah. than completely opening you up and making you feel like you're okay. And we've heard this a lot, These some of these programs, right, that they're just kind of made so complicated yeah. and that they're, as a result, not reaching people quickly. I mean, that this whole idea of these Main Street loan programs haven't reached the people that it's uh, set out to help. Yeah, that was really a, kind of, a key part of the testimony right? this morning, mm-hmm. I, I think. Yeah. yeah great. All right, we're going to leave it there. Hey, guys, thank you so much. Demetra, thank you. Demetra Cassaniti, she's a Bloomberg News Editor on the phone in New Jersey. Greg Sugar, uh, good luck with everything. Owner of Bowties of Vermont on the phone in Florida. Bowties. It's really Bow cute. Ties. It's really I know. cute. I, you, I you'll like it. Out. I don't know if you checked it out. I will check it out for sure, and uh, I, everybody needs masks these days. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. You try saying, press 
Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. We've had an interesting market day. Investors, to some extent, maybe listening to Jay Powell and Stephen Mnuchin up on Capitol Hill. I think we're just kind of in this interesting environment. Let's see what Mark Lucchini has to say. He's chief investment strategist at Janney Montgomery Scott, joining us on the phone from Pittsburgh. And as we bring him in, I do want to point out that equities at their lows of the day, Dow down almost 1.2%, pretty flat on the NASDAQ, and just down about seven tenths of 1% on the S&P, of course, coming after one day where we saw a a broad-based rally that sent stocks significantly higher. So, Mark, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Um, You're in charge of setting your firm's view on macroeconomics, as well as the equity market and the fixed income market. How do you see it right now? Well, good afternoon. Yes, thank you for having me on. Well, uh, we've taken the position that uh, it's certainly time to be parsimoniously allocating risk-based capital in the equity markets. And by that, we mean taking a constructive but cautious approach, because what we've seen here is a pretty massive rally, which, uh, including the news yesterday from Moderna, is baking in and pulling forward a lot of hope and expectation that the accompanying economic recovery is going to represent the same V-shape that we've seen out of equity prices. And, of course, the vaccine is clearly the game changer. But as we're finding out today, perhaps investors were a little bit premature in expecting that what we saw in terms of a somewhat preliminary release around the the trial efficacy that was shown from the vaccine from Moderna uh, may have a little more work to do to prove ultimately to be the solution that we need to be able to restore normal life uh, in the U.S. and for that matter, around the world. So eyes on vaccines, eyes on Capitol Hill, but also eyes on some big earnings this week, uh, Mark, especially when we look at some of the retailers that, that came out today, Home Depot and Walmart and Kohl's most notably. What did you read into that? Any surprises or any indicators there that might give us a sense of what's going on in the real world? Uh, again, I think it continues to be a function of the winners and the losers. I mean, one can uh, generalize about the retailing space and say, well, it's not a place I want to invest capital. But in fact, it's much more nuanced than that. You have the, the hypermarkets, if you will, like the Walmarts and the Costcos and even the Targets uh, that you would put in that category that have very effectively competed in this environment for consumer spending, particularly as it relates to general household items, consumer staples. Uh, if you will. And also uh, what's common among these franchises is the fact that they've been very good at adopting an e-commerce initiative that escalated rather quickly some years ago. Um, And has not only helped them in times like this, but we've been obviously shopping from our homes and and, uh, uh, regional or or city-specific locales. But uh, in addition to that, uh, compete very effectively against Amazon. Uh, unfortunately, as some of the others that have been saddled with brick-and-mortar debt uh, that have been obviously victimized by the low traffic in the malls and, and some of the strip classes and so on, like the Coles and the J.C. JCPenney's, um, that are going to struggle in the case of those that remain open and uh, struggle to come back from bankruptcy that's been declared like in the case of J.C. Penney. Hey, you know, Mark, I'm curious what you're hearing, um, and even maybe internally within your company, how you guys, I mean, you're in a very senior position at your company. 
What you guys foresee will be your responsibility to some of the big problems that are being um, really revealed during this crisis? Not new problems, right? Whether it's inequalities, whether it's people, you know, Jay Powell coming out and talking about, you know, the percentage of people making $40,000 a year who are out of work right now, just struggling to get by. Jamie Dimon coming out uh, today saying he hopes policymakers use the virus uh, crisis as a a wake-up call to address some of those inequalities that are among Americans. What are you guys, what are the conversations you're having internally about the role of your firm going forward? And also, what you anticipate will be the priorities of companies going forward? Will it be just about existence and making sure shareholders are happy? Or will people think about the broader good, even at the expense of maybe earnings per share? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. And uh, yes, while I do hold a senior position, much of that kind of discussion and policy is a little bit, a little bit away from my jurisdiction as, as the chief investment strategist. Having said that, I think a couple of things that uh, we've seen. I think there's already been, um, if you will, not necessarily uh, due to Janie or, or is going on in Janie, but actually preceded this. And that's really a secular shift away from capitalism, if you will, in a sense of away from managing for only shareholder or stakeholder value and really expanding uh, that cohort to consider labor. Um, much more strongly. And in fact, we've seen, uh, if you will, more capital by way of increasing in wages and so on, benefits and whatever, job security being transferred to labor. Now, this is a phenomenon that's going to take many, many years to develop to catch up to look anything like we saw, for instance, back in the 1960s. But nonetheless, at least directionally, this has been a secular change that's actually been underway now for some time. But I, I think also Janie's in a somewhat unique position in that we're a privately held enterprise or a wholly owned subsidiary of Penn Mutual. And therefore, I think our firm's management team can think differently about yeah. the decisions that they're making that are not catering to quarter over quarter public scrutiny and earnings announcements, but rather that can which benefit the strategic initiative of the firm over an extended period of time, which includes diversity measures, which uh, we've adopted and undertaken quite aggressively in the firm to to make sure that uh, we're providing uh, the kind of access to individuals and, and again, cohorts um, of all various races, uh, educational levels, and income needs as a way to participate and uh, a really good story and narrative around uh, what Janie Montgomery Scott has offered to um, its right. clients. But I think as a go forward, um, you can see it by way of ESG, the Environmental, Social, and Government Initiatives, which is a large and, and growing, right. um, if you will, franchise that is gathering massive amounts of money from asset managers, and they're pressing on companies to adopt more fully right. these policies. Right. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Mark, appreciate uh, your thoughts on that. Mark Lucini, he's Chief Investment Strategist at Jenny Montgomery Scott, joining us on the phone from Pittsburgh. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.